Well, I wonder what have been the turning points in your life? You know, those kind of moments when things in your life make a significant change in direction. Maybe it was when you were accepted into a course or offered a job or received a special award or found out you were expecting a baby or experienced a major health scare. These events can be turning points in our lives. And what happens after that can change your future. I remember the night in 1994, a little while ago, my minister invited Mandy and me to a special meeting after church in his office. And he sat the two of us down and he said these words I'll never forget. Are you feeling settled? I'm about to make you feel unsettled. Right, yeah, what comes next? <laughs> what do you think the meaning of what that meeting was? What was the purpose of that meeting? Well, he said to me, he said, Jody, I'd like you to consider joining our staff next year as an MTS worker. Now, they were only kind of new things back then, and our church had never had one before. But what I did know was that that would mean leaving my comfortable job, where I was actually being groomed to take over the reins of the family business for my grandfather. And my minister wanted me to take a significant pay cut so I could do this two-year ministry apprenticeship under him in full-time gospel work. That was a big question. Mandy and I had been married for about two years at the time and, and we'd, we'd already decided that we wanted to head in that direction eventually. But I think over those two years we'd started to get a bit comfortable. We'd started to sort of settle down a bit. We were quite happy with our careers and probably could have stayed there just a bit longer and maybe even just a bit longer after that and then, well, who knows how much longer. But this unsettling invitation was a turning point for both of us. And as we walked back to our car after that brief nighttime meeting, we knew it was an absolute no-brainer. And so I, wrote, I broke the news to my boss, who was my grandfather, saying, I wasn't going to stay in the family company, sorry. And I was going to spend all my time telling people about Jesus. Uh, he was disappointed in some ways, but he loved the Lord Jesus. And he, well, he, he was excited about it and was very supportive of the move. And even acknowledged at one stage it was the kind of thing that he maybe wished he might have done in his 20s as well if he had his time over again. It was a turning point, and a turning point that ultimately led to Mandy and me being right here in Jamboree with you guys. Sometimes an organisation will face a turning point. It might be a crisis that brings about serious change to an unsafe workplace. Or it might be that a new product goes viral and everyone around the world is clambering to buy the product. Wouldn't you like to have been Zoom two years ago? Yeah. Well, today we are going to see a turning point in the life of Jesus' disciples. And this turning point will change the individuals who closely followed Jesus at that time, like Peter and like the other apostles. And this turning point then brought about a change in the lives of millions and millions of others after that. People who have since followed Jesus as Lord. In a sense, it all comes back to this turning point that we're looking at tonight. And it starts with Matthew chapter 16 with another clash with Jesus. Verse 1. 
One day the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authorities. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are two different kinds of Jewish leaders. Typically they didn't get on very well, but because of a common enemy, they've decided to actually get on well and come together to confront Jesus. They want to test Jesus, demanding a miraculous sign from heaven as proof of his authority. No doubt they've heard about all the other stuff that he's done already. The feeding of the 5,000, maybe the walking on water, certainly the healings and all of the things where people had the demons cast out of them. That must have got back to them. But they're kind of thinking... Why don't we just sort of do a bit of a power move here and go there and stand before him and say, you show us now because we are the top brass. We are the ones who should be able to be able to demand this from you because look at who we are. We're the Jews. We're the leaders. If I was Jesus, I reckon I'd be tempted to say, all righty, okay. Hey, Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. And, but he didn't. Didn't do that at all. It's not the way he works. And in fact, he recognised that the, the Jewish leaders, by them demanding a sign, it showed that their heart was totally in the wrong spot. And so Jesus replies, verse 2 and 3, You know the saying, red at night means fair weather tomorrow, and red sky in the morning means foul weather all day? You know how to interpret the weather signs of the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. You heard that saying before? Red at night, sa- red at night, sailor's delight. Red at morning, sailor's warning. Or, or maybe farmer's warning or whatever it is you want to put in it. The Jewish leaders knew how to read the weather signs. But they can't read the spiritual signs. The Jewish leaders couldn't read the spiritual signs at all. Jesus has said so much and he's done so much that, that clearly demonstrates that he's the Messiah. And yet the very people who should know their Bible better than anyone else, they've rejected him and they've closed their hearts off from him. And so Jesus is damning in his response. He says in verse 4, Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I'll give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then Jesus left them and went away. He's basically called them evil and adulterous even. He doesn't hold back his rebuke. He's very honest in the way that he speaks to them. And again, he mentions the sign of Jonah, back like he did in chapter 12. Remember this, verse 39, he talked about that then, verse 40, 41. He says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The people of Nineveh will stand up against this generation on Judgment Day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. And now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. It could be that Jesus repeated similar words as he spoke the second time using that catchphrase. And you know, Matthew just thought, well, I'm not going to include it all. You'll know what he said last time, a similar sort of thing. That's possible. But it could be that he's just like, Oh, really? You guys, Jonah, work it out. But the whole thing about Jonah was that he's saying that the proof of Jesus is the empty tomb. Like Jonah spending three days underwater, Jesus will spend three days underground. And he's saying, basically, that's the proof you need. And it's all you're going to get. 
But these Pharisees and Sadducees, they won't repent anyway, most of them. Because they've made up their mind to reject Jesus. He is in their sights and they have lined him up and they are ready to assassinate him in, in every single sense. So Jesus doesn't engage with them anymore. He just walks away. They've got access to the scriptures. They should know the Bible better than anybody else. And they're face to face with the man we know to be the very son of God. And yet that's not enough. They want more. Or they want different. But whatever it is, they won't follow Jesus. And so Jesus walks away. And they will get the sign, the sign they want. But it will only be after they've killed him. And this confrontation brings about a really important discussion between Jesus and his disciples. Because we read in verse 5 that later, after they crossed to the other side of the lake, the disciples discovered that they had forgotten to bring any bread. Oh dear, it's the third time they've got a catering problem here. But Jesus uses this lack of bread and their problem and their concern about it to give them an important message. He says in verse 6, Watch out, Jesus warned them. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He basically says, you only need just a little bit of bad stuff from these Pharisees and Sadducees and it will make its way through everything. Just a few Pharisees and Sadducees can harm a whole lot of people, even the disciples themselves. It's like when you have a little bit of yeast. You don't need much when you're making bread. But you put a little bit in and you do what you're supposed to do with it and it'll make flatbread fluffy. It's pretty cool. But if you're trying to not make, flat, make fluffy bread because you're kind of wanting unleavened bread and someone says, oh, we'll just pop a little bit and nobody will notice, you bet they will. Just a little bit of yeast will make its way into the whole dough. Anyway, they're thinking, okay, well, what is all about this? Well, after Jesus had said this, verse 7 at this, they began to argue with each other because they hadn't brought enough bread. And what would the argument be like? Peter, I told you to bring the bread. Oh, Thomas, no, I, you were going to bring it. No, you were going to bring it. I don't know. Who brought it then? Simon, what about you? Oh, not me, mate. It was you. And they're arguing away and all this sort of stuff. And Jesus sort of does that, you can imagine, sort of the face slap. Like, oh, really? And he says to them, because he knew what they were saying. So he said... You have so little faith. Why are you arguing with each other about having no bread? They're just thinking about bread and, oh, how on earth will we have enough bread to be able to eat? How, what, how can we be fed? We've never seen any miracles relating to feeding before, of course. He slams them for their lack of faith. They're focused on their stomach, not on spiritual things. And so Jesus said in verse 9, don't you, even, don't you understand even yet? Don't you remember the 5,000 I fed with five loaves and the baskets of leftovers you picked up? Or the 4,000 I fed with seven loaves and the large baskets of leftovers you picked up? Why can't you understand that I'm not talking about bread? <laughs> Come on! <laughs> so again I say, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus makes it very clear for all of this that he wants that he can provide for their physical needs like he fed all the crowds but he wants them to realize that they need to beware they need to beware 
of false teaching. Beware. Just a few bad leaders of Israel can wreck the whole people of God. Just a little bit can do massive damage. Beware of false teaching. It was true back then, but of course it's true today as well. If we have a few influential people who call themselves Christians, but they teach a few just little mistruths about Jesus and about the Bible, their teaching can poison everyone. It's not exactly the same situation as the first century where these Jewish leaders were leading people away from the true Messiah, Jesus, who was right there with them. But it's still true that some so-called Christians will lead people away from Jesus because they push a belief that, that basically prevents people from being able to hear God's word. Like those who subtly undermine the Bible when they say, oh, that's just the Apostle Paul's bit. And his attitude to women wasn't really that good. So I don't think we need to follow his teaching, really. Or another one I heard only this week from someone. Oh, you know, that teaching by Paul, it was only to that specific church at that specific time, so it doesn't really apply to us today. Seems okay in a way. You sort of think, oh, okay, that sounds legit. But in the end, it's a pathway that takes people away from the Bible. And if we're not ready to call it out and deal with it, then it will poison people with false teaching. Well, finally, the disciples get the message, first of all. Then at last they understood that he wasn't speaking about the yeast and the bread, but about the deceptive teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Ah, yeah, I get it. I get it right. He's... He's saying you've got to get this bit right. And in particular, you've got to make sure that we know who Jesus truly is and that we don't listen to the teaching that gets it wrong. Way too high. And all of this prepares us for what we are about to come, which is a massive turning point in the life of the apostles and a massive turning point for the life of the church. Are you ready for it? Because this turning point is going to happen at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi. Jesus goes on another journey and he asks them there a very important question. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, the son of man is. Now it all happens in Caesarea Philippi. It's about 60 k's north of the top of Lake Galilee, which is a few days walk takes about an hour or so to drive there. It was a significant place because it was outside the land of Israel. Here are some photos that I took when Mandy and I visited there a few years ago. It's pretty awesome. The first of it...
is? It's a really important question. The identity of Jesus is in, in many ways the most important thing that people need to know. The most important thing in the world is Jesus' identity. Now, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then as we look through the historical account of the life of Jesus in the Bible, you will be uncovering information about his identity. You can't not do it. You just see it right there. As you see this, as you read this, you'll be making up your mind about who you think that Jesus is. And this is the most important thing that you or anyone can do. Because if Jesus is just a human being, then if he's got good things to say, then we might choose to listen to his words and follow his advice if we like it. But if he's actually the Messiah, if he's truly the Son of God, then the only right thing to do is to follow him and trust him and worship him. And what's more, if you don't follow him, then you will experience the judgment of God in hell that lasts forever. There's nothing more important than getting Jesus' identity right. And that's what brings us to the question from Jesus. Who do people say that I am? And here's, here are the options they've heard. Verse 14. Well, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's interesting. All of the options are that Jesus is the embodiment of somebody who's died and was a significant person in the life of the church. They think Jesus is very special, but... He's just sort of some sort of weird kind of reincarnation of a great person from the Old Testament. But then Jesus says to them, but who do you, who do you all, it's in the plural, who do you all say I am? It gets up front. It gets personal. Jesus asks his disciples what they think is his identity. And here's the answer. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right here is the turning point. It's the turning point that we've been waiting for. And finally, the disciples recognise that Jesus is the Messiah. Or, as they put it another way as well, Jesus is the Son of God, which is another title that's belonging to the Messiah. Peter has no doubt about Jesus' identity. Jesus is the leader that God's people have been waiting for for so, so long. Jesus is that man. I mean, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew over all these weeks. But this moment is a turning point in the life of the disciples because now the stakes are suddenly so much higher. And what comes next from Jesus' mouth is fascinating. Because he says in verse 17, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Jesus says to Simon Peter, the reason you know my true identity is because a revelation from God the Father has given it to you. That's how you know. 
It's not something you come up with because you're clever. That's certainly not the case. It's not something you've come up with by listening to someone who's clever. You know because God told you. Peter knows Jesus' identity because God told him. And because he's received this very important revelation from God, Simon Peter will now have a very important role in the future of the church. This is quite a famous verse that I'm about to read out to you. Verse 18. Jesus says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. This is where the geography makes this verse even more fascinating. You might wonder why I've shown you my holiday snaps of Israel. Well, let me show you. Uh, And things are about to get a little bit nerdy, so if this stuff doesn't interest you, then you can just tune off for about 30 seconds or 60 or 80 seconds or something like that. But I think you'll be able to manage, okay? The first thing is they're standing in front of a really big rock, right? Did you see that before? It's a big rock. (laughs) And they're talking about rocks and building on rocks and things like that, which all sort of makes sense, doesn't it? But it's even more interesting when you realise what Peter's Peter's name is in the original Greek language that they spoke at the time and that was written down in. Jesus said, and here's the nerdy bit, he said, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. It's a play on words that you don't quite get in 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 the English language. Petros is how it sounds in the Greek. And it sort of means kind of little rock but then the word for big rock is Petra so Jesus says you are Petros and on this Petra I will build my church they're standing there in front of a huge big rock and in it is built in this temple of Zeus cut into the giant rock face and Jesus talks about rocks to this guy called Rocky okay you got it this is this is the significance of all of this And then Jesus says, upon this Petra, I will build my church. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, Jesus is saying that he will build his spiritual gathering, his spiritual gathering of people. The word church in the original language of Greek can also be translated assembly or gathering of people. It's just a a group of people gathering together. Even Even the mob that got together in Acts to do a riot That's actually the same word as used, church. And if we could just get even more nerdy, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament uses this word, ecclesia, to translate the word for assembly in Hebrew. So, stick with me, nerds. The Lord, Deuteronomy 9, the Lord gave me the two tablets on which God had written with his own finger all the words he had spoken to you from the heart of the fire when you were churched at the mountain when you were assembled at the mountain and you know what else happened when they were churching at that mountain Exodus 17 6 the Lord says I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai strike the rock and water will come gushing out then the people will be able to drink so Moses struck the rock as he was told and water gushed out as the elders looked on God's people churched near the rock near Mount Sinai. And now Jesus will build his church on the rock. 
And he actually says that the powers of hell will not conquer it. Or as the NIV says, it's a little bit more literal, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Remember what I said about that big cave that was there next to the temple of Zeus? Here's another picture of it there. You can sort of see a big rock right there and then just behind it is a really big cave that you can walk inside. So there they are. They're at this temple of Zeus. And right there, Jesus says, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell will not overcome it. And you can point there to this this big cave that is sort of the gates of hell in that way. Jesus was building the true church on the real rock. And Satan's church, it would not be able to defeat it. And he's probably pointing to this stuff as he's saying it. Now Jesus is building his church, his eternal spiritual gathering on this rock. And so the question is, when he says on this rock I will build my church, what is this rock? Well, what do the Roman Catholics think about this? They say that this rock is Peter. And that's why he's the father, or as they say in Latin, Papa, from which they get Pope. So they say that Peter is the first Pope from this verse. And that's what makes him so important for the church, because the Pope then has next person he passes his baton on to the next person and the popes that come after him have this special papa role over the church where he can say stuff and it's totally true. It's it's infallible. Is that what it's all talking about? No. That's not what this rock means. Jesus is the rock. We've sung about it already. You know that. This is what Jesus thought when he wrote... This is what um, Peter thought. You know, Peter's there, right? This is what Peter thought when he wrote his letter in 1 Peter 2. He said, You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honour. He is the cornerstone. Very, very clear that Jesus is the rock, right? And Peter quotes from Isaiah 28. Which says, therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone, a rock, in Jerusalem. A firm and tested stone. It's a precious cornerstone that's safe to build on. I will build my church on the... Whoever believes need never be shaken. Apostle Paul, he thought they were onto a good thing. He said a similar thing. 1 Corinthians 3.11 No one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. Can you see it there? So Jesus is the rock, right? It's not rocket science. (laughs) Then Jesus goes on to talk about some keys. Verse 19. He says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about there? Well, you can have a guess what the Catholics might be thinking about there, but what does the Bible say? Well, how does someone get into the kingdom of heaven? It's by believing the good news that says Jesus is Lord. That's what it means, isn't it? That's not hard. The key to unlock the kingdom of heaven is the gospel. The key to heaven is the gospel. 
It's the message that the apostles received by being with Jesus. And it's what we tell people as we talk to them about Jesus. From the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, who've written us 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Romans, all that kind of stuff, 1, 2, 3 John, stuff like that. And what's more, after that, we see that Jesus said, verse 19, Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Uh, As the NIV puts it a little bit more literally, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What's it talking about? It's pretty simple. The keys to the kingdom is the gospel message. It's the good news that Jesus is Lord. And when people believe in the good news, what happens? They'll be forgiven of their sins in heaven right now. But when people reject the good news on earth, they'll be locked out of heaven right now. What happens now will lock or unlock eternity. What keys do. That's why Jesus tells us that we can have certainty for eternity. See, I've got the keys to the kingdom of heaven because I've got the gospel of Jesus. John Meon, before, as he got up here and talked to him, he, he, he had the keys to the kingdom of heaven because he's got the gospel that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. They're the keys right there. And so if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then right then... The gates open to heaven and you're in. And if you say, then the gate remains closed. What happens on earth is what happens in heaven. That's the choice. It's pretty simple. Everyone's got to make that choice. And the choice you make now will have a choice for eternity. And so if you have not chosen to believe the gospel of Jesus, you're locked out of heaven which means you're heading for hell. You can't sit on the fence. You can't have an each-way bed. You can't shrug your shoulders and say, oh, I don't know, it doesn't matter. It does matter. If the gate's not open, if you have not accepted the gospel of Jesus, then that gate is closed and you are out and not in. You need to make up your mind now before it's too late. Well, with this awesome news, Jesus now commands his disciples to spread it to all the nations. Actually, no, he doesn't. He says, verse 20, don't tell anyone that he's the Messiah. Oh, really? Not now. There will be a time when that will happen. After the cross, of course. But right now, Jesus tells his disciples to hide his identity. Let's just keep it amongst ourselves. Those of us here at the entrance to the, to the cave, right here as we're here before the, the, the temple of Zeus. Let's just keep it to ourselves, okay? Because as he keeps that identity to them, things now get really, really real. This is where the turning point ends up. Because it now says, Jesus, verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem 
and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. Can you see why this episode here is the turning point for the disciples? Finally, Jesus turns on all the lights. Finally, Jesus opens up the curtain. Finally, Jesus makes it very clear what we all know. And that is that he is dead man walking. He is walking towards his death in Jerusalem. We kind of knew it. We've sort of, you know, we've read the book before. We've seen the movie. But if you're there, this is the first time. And it was going to be a death from the Jewish leaders of all people. But the death would be short-lived because on the third day he'd be raised from the dead to life. Old news for us, but poor, shocking news for the disciples. And so shocking because Peter says, verse 22, we read that he took Jesus aside and began to reprimand Jesus. Tell Jesus off for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, Peter said to Jesus. This will never happen to you, he says. It'll never happen to you. But Jesus recognises that Peter's words are satanic. And so Jesus says to him, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Imagine how heated this must be at this stage. Jesus just said, I'm going to die soon. And they're like, what? You're the king. How does this work? And Peter, because he just always has the answer, he says, no, it's not going to happen over my dead body. Forget that, Jesus. That's not going to happen. And Jesus turns to, to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Can you believe it? Literally, he says to Peter that he is a, a stumbling block. Satan is actually using a little rock to try and trip over the big rock. Try, as Jesus must have been so tempted to, to actually not go to Jerusalem. It's like, it'd be a nice time for a Greek island cruise. Let's go anywhere but Jerusalem right now because I know when I get there I'm going to die. And of all people, he didn't need friendly fire from the disciples who say, hey, don't do it. Don't go to Jerusalem. We kind of like you, Jesus. We're enjoying your company. Don't go and die on us. But anyone who thinks that Jesus could rule without going to the cross is dangerously wrong. Jesus had to die so that he could deal with Satan. He had to die so he could deal with death. And he had to die so that you and I could live. And this is what living for Jesus looks like. Verse 24 and 25. Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. 
If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. If you want to be part of Jesus' team, if you want to be part of Jesus' gathering, if you want to be part of Jesus' cross, then you need to follow him to the cross. If you want to be part of his church, you need to follow him to the cross. You need to let go of your life and hold on to Jesus. As the song goes, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your your cross I cling. That is the only way that your life will be saved by Jesus. And it's worth it. Verse 26, Jesus says, And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? Which, of course, the answer is no. There's nothing worth hanging on to in the world if it means you lose your soul. There's nothing worth hanging on to in the world if it means you go to hell. There's nothing worth hanging on to in the world except the cross of Christ. And that's because Jesus, the Son of Man, was going to the cross right then. The final verses. We read verse 27, For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. And I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now, disciples in the first century around about 28 AD, you will not die before you see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. The Son of Man from Daniel 7 was coming to judge. And that was going to happen back then. Just a little bit after their time. What Jesus is talking about here is the most earth-shattering moment in history. The execution of the Messiah by the shepherds of Israel. There is nothing more catastrophic. There is nothing more abhorrent in the history of the universe than the shepherds of Israel murdering the Messiah. And that is when the Son of Man came with the angels in the glory of his Father. Well, at this amazing event, the event with the rock and the little rock in front of the big rock, it was a turning point. And this turning point offers everyone a turning point. Because since this turning point, it means that every human since then can have their own personal turning point. For me, I've had turning points in my life. That invitation to do MTS or to marry Mandy or to have kids, they were little turning points in my life. But they were actually little compared to the turning point when I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Saviour. That's the only turning point that really ultimately matters for eternity. I have certainty for eternity because I know that the moment that I did that, 
that the keys were used and I was in heaven. My name was in heaven. What was opened on earth, loosed in earth, is loosed in heaven. Because I believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus. What about you? Have you made that turning point in your life? Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. But if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life, for my sake, says Jesus, you will save it.